John chapter 12, verses 20 through 31. Let me read these verses for us. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. We'll finish there today. Let me pray together for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Again, Father, we ask that you be here with us and be our teacher uh, this morning. Father, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear uh, truth from you. Um, And we pray that you will change us and make us more like Christ because of your word and for for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here in... um, these couple of verses here, we meet, or we, we uh, John mentions Andrew. And if you think about Andrew, uh, he's not uh, one of the most well-known apostles. Um, but, uh, but he has a special gift, it appears. It, it seems as though uh, every time he appears in the scriptures, he's bringing someone to Jesus. That's what it appears like that when we see. Earlier, we see in John 1, uh, Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus. And today we see him bringing these Greeks, these Greek-speaking folks uh, here to Jesus. And as an aside here, uh, Dr. Sproul mentioned that because of this trait that we see of Andrew, uh, that's why they named their church in Orlando, Florida, St. Andrews. He says, because we want to be a church who brings people to Jesus. That's wonderful me. I never knew that as far as the, the reasoning behind the name of their church, St. Andrews. Because we must bring, we must be bringing people to Jesus and that is our business, isn't it? To bring people to Jesus. John tells us in verse 20 that certain Greeks were in town for the Passover. Now, they may have been uh, Greek-speaking Jews who were living outside of the region of Judea. Uh, it's also possible that they were Gentile God-fearing. Um, Greeks, uh, Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel. Now, we know that from uh, the Gospel of Mark that Jesus, during this time, he's there for the Passover, <clears throat> during his Holy Week. He also cleansed the temple, if you remember that from the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the part that he cleansed, if you remember, was open to the Gentiles, the area of the temple. So it's possible that maybe they had been in town, that maybe they had witnessed this event, um, we're not exactly sure, uh, but uh, it's whatever reason they had, they wanted to speak with Jesus. And so verse 21, it says, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
That's, again, it's not clear why uh, they went to Philip or why it even necessary that John even felt it necessary to mention uh, that Philip was from Bethsaida. Maybe, maybe the Greeks had some connection with him. Maybe there were some connection to the town. Um, but we're not sure. Anyway, what we do need to notice is that they didn't say, uh, you know, show us where Jesus is so that we can go see him or see what he looks like or whatever. They didn't say that. They wanted to speak with him. They wanted that, that I need to speak. We need to speak with this man. We would, it's like there's a, we would like to meet with him. We have some things we need to discuss. So it was, we want a meeting with him. We, we need to have a conversation. Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Again, we're not exactly sure why Philip went to Andrew. Maybe he had some doubts about uh, their request or their intentions, so maybe he wants to clear it with Andrew. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it doesn't appear that Andrew has any issues with this at all uh, because they go straight to Jesus. One uh, one of the oddities, as Dr. Sproul noted, of this passage is that John never tells us how Jesus responds to their request. He didn't, he didn't say, yeah, sure, bring them on over. I'm happy to meet with Gentiles. We don't really know what he said or what his response was. Instead, what do we see Jesus doing? He, what we have recorded here in the Gospel of John, he focuses immediately on the significance of the moment at hand. What's about to be taking place, or what is taking place. Verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, I'm going to pause there just for a minute. Throughout our study uh, in John, uh, John's Gospel, we've seen several cryptic messages or cryptic references to this to Jesus' hour. Okay, this hour, my hour has not come. Now, several, several cases. You remember back in in uh, in chapter two, verse four. You remember these words, "Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." Do you remember the situation with that one? What what had just happened, or what was about to happen? Who remembers early in the Gospel of John? Water into wine. Water into wine. That's right. He's addressing his mother, right, when he says, uh, "Woman, my hour has not yet come." Uh, chapter seven, verse. 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Those, that's a little bit harder to, to remember the timeline. Um, that had happened uh, right after he had, they had brought the woman who was caught in adultery, if you remember. And that happened right after this. And, and, and Jesus talks about his hour. Uh, and his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Anybody remember that situation, what had happened really before? Why do they, why, why do they want to get him that time? You remember? I remember. Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. They were not happy about it. Um, so yet ever ready to, to lay hands on him. But again, what does Jesus' word say? His hour had not yet come. So these, these, these messages before, it's always something that is happening in the future. Well, now Jesus says what? Uh, the hour has come. It's upon us. Now, in, uh, in the first instance we talked about, his hour uh, seems to refer to the time of Jesus' exaltation, the hour of his glorification. 
Some of the others uh, seem to refer to his hour of humiliation, his passion, the passion right, of the cross. Again, but in all those instances, the hour had not yet come. Here today, Jesus plainly says the hour is now at hand. We can also see a distinction between the hour of shame, the hour of his passion, um, and the hour of exaltation. It had, had seemed to have disappeared here. Why, why do we say that? Well, he speaks here about the hour of his glorification, right? He mentions that. But we know his passion is about to begin. It's about to happen. Uh, Calvin, uh, when he uh, addressed these, he, he took a, a, a I would maybe call it a broader look at what was happening here. Surely Jesus is about to experience his passion. Surely he will be exalted. He will be raised. He will be glorified. Surely all those things are happening. Uh, Calvin said, but rather, uh, I, but I rather view it as referring, this hour meaning, as referring to the publication of the gospel. As if he had said that the knowledge of him would soon be spread throughout every region of the world. So Calvin kind of, he's kind of zooming out a little bit, maybe, if that makes sense, and looking at the overall what's really happening. Well, through all these things, his passion, his exaltation, his glorification, everything is about going to be, it's going to be revealing the gospel. It's about the publication of the gospel. Calvin added, uh, thus he wished wish to meet the astonishment with his death might excite his disciples. For he shows that there is no reason why their courage should fail because the doctrine of the gospel will nevertheless be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, get back towards, so so Calvin's got a, a, I won't say a different view, but just a, a, a different perspective maybe is a better way to look at it. Verse 24. Verse 24 kind of leads us to when we're thinking about it, leads us to think about his passion. Why? Because what does verse 24 say? Most assuredly, to Jesus' words, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Here, it seems that Jesus is speaking of his hour of, of his glorification and the hour of his death. It's all, it's, it's here together, right? Because he's talking about his passion. He's talking about death. He's talking about um, the grain of wheat, right? He says, but if it dies, if the grain of wheat dies, then it produces much grain. If you remember, uh, so, so Jesus is laying forth uh, the the the. He's reminding folks that, hey, the path to glory is through suffering. It's about to happen, okay? It's, he's talking about death. He's referring to the passion of the cross, right? What would happen here just in a few days? If you remember in the wilderness, uh, Satan, knowing why Jesus was in the world, you remember Satan offered a different path, if you remember, right? He, Satan tried to offer Jesus a path that would not include the suffering. A way around, so to speak. A loophole, right? Um, all he had to do was what? I, I, I'll spare you from all this, Jesus. You won't have to endure all the suffering. All you got to do what? All you got to do is bow down to me. Worship me. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. No cross. No suffering. No shame. 
I'll give it to you. But we know Jesus refused that way, that path that Satan offered, because it was what? It was not the Father's way. It is not according to the plan. So we think here that we can assume here that Jesus is thinking more about the consequences of the suffering here that Jesus will have to go through. And notice one thing about the passion, uh, the passion of Christ. It wasn't that the passion was the pathway to glory. No, there was actually glory in the passion. That's a. It's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? It's, it's not a pathway. It's not simply a, a deep place to go through to then receive glory. There was actually glory in the passion. How can this be? Uh, because his death on the cross, he was obeying the Father and therefore glorifying the Father. And all who obey the Father and give glory to him are honored by him, aren't they? But the Bible tells us that. Earlier we saw uh, a pivotal moment, if you remember, in the importance uh, of, of Jesus' ministry when he referred to the bread of life. Okay, remember that? Uh, Jesus, uh, we saw how, how radical Jesus' teaching was. He talked about, um, he talked about being the new manner, right? All the, the Jews will understand the manner, they understand the provisions. Um, so he, he talked about being the new man, as it were, the bread that came down from heaven, uh, the bread that not that doesn't just satisfy your physical hunger, but it satisfies our hunger forever. Remember, he, he, had, he, had, uh, he had taught that doctrine. Well, now, now that his hour has come, it is at hand, Jesus gives us another lesson from the agrarian lifestyle, okay, the agrarian time that they live in of the day. So now he's speaking, he, he said, I am the bread of life, right? He, he said those words. Is I am the bread of life, and, it, and unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. If anything is to come of the seed, it has to fall to the ground and it has to die. But in dying, it brings forth great fruit of abundance. So we see what Jesus is alluding to here, his death and what it would provide. At this point, Dr. Sproul says, Away with the doctrine of the atonement that it holds that Jesus died to make salvation possible. As if our Lord went to the cross, rose from the dead, returned to heaven, and then took a seat on the 50-yard line to observe the consequences of his actions. Well, you know, I hope someone takes advantage of what I have done. That doesn't sound right, does it? Because it's not right, is it? We know that's not right. Jesus, Jesus did not say that if the grain of the wheat falls into the ground and dies, it might produce some fruit. Did He? No, He didn't say that. He said that it would produce fruit. It would produce much fruit. It was, it was not even possible. And listen to this one. I have to read it twice to myself. It's not possible that the atonement of Christ could not bear fruit. That, you hear what I'm saying there? It's not possible that His atonement cannot bear fruit. That's not possible. The Father makes it certain that the grain of wheat that falls and dies will bear much fruit. The Father makes it certain. 
if indeed you are in Christ and you have tasted uh, the bread of heaven, then, then beloved, you are that fruit. Okay, you are the fruit that he is even that he's talking about. And and the, the fruit includes all of Jesus's church. Which even includes probably some of these Greeks that we're reading about here today. No longer would the Gentiles be kept on the fringes, uh, restricted to the outer court as they had been when they witnessed the cleansing of the temple, right? They couldn't go into the inside because they're Gentiles. They're not clean. They were restricted. Well, no longer does that happen. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been utterly destroyed. It has been utterly destroyed by the atonement of Christ. Jesus goes on to say here in verses... 25 and 26. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. It's with this verse that we see this amazing paradox of the Christian life. You, you remember you remember what a paradox is, right? A paradox, uh, at first glance, it seems like it's a contradiction, right? That's what it, when you hear it the first time, those, those things don't, that, that they don't agree. But it just only seems that way. It's paradoxical, right? So here's, here's this great paradox of the Christian life that Jesus spoke about many times. We his point is that we find life, eternal life, in dying to self and following Christ. This, what is it? He who loves his life will lose it. You see these things. He, he puts these things next to each other. And it's a comparison. Again, it's, it's, it's paradoxical. It just, it's like, how does, how does this work? But we see here that um, Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him. What it looks like. And, and it does require a dying to self. So what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, what we know uh, here in the next chapter of John, we get to it, Lord, Lord willing, uh, we see uh, Jesus speaks about going away. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about, I'm going to leave, I'm going away, and where I go, you can't go. And what did Peter ask? Lord, where are you going? It's an easy, simple question, right? Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot go. But you will follow me afterward. That's in chapter 13. Jesus was was warning Peter. Jesus was saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you do have to follow me. You're going to have to follow me. And that means walking in the shadow of the cross. You will be participating along with me in my humiliation. That's what Jesus was trying to tell Peter. That's a hard word when you when you think about it, right? Think about all the, the temptations. Think about Satan's temptations. I'll give you everything. You can go around. You don't have to go through suffering. Well, Jesus makes it very clear that if you're going to follow after me, you're going to be my disciple. It's going to require suffering. And you will participate with me. Right uh, right before our Lord left this planet, left this earth, 
He gave the church the Great Commission. And y'all know what that is. is to go into all the world baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we read that in Matthew 28. And if you are baptized, then you have uh, the mark on your body. The participation in the suffering is the outward mark. But it's, it's the mark of the participation of the suffering of Christ. You have been numbered with Him. Because what do we know about baptism? We, are, we have been buried with Him in baptism. We, have, we, are, we are, are joined with Him in a very real way. Again, baptism is, is a sign, doesn't, doesn't change anything, but it signifies all these other things, right? And so, um, the Apostle Paul, when he, he warns us um, in his letters that if you're not willing to participate with Christ in His humiliation and in His suffering, if for some reason you think that's too good for you and you don't need to do that, then he says you'll have no part in his exaltation, his glorification. In other words, you won't see, you won't be with him in heaven. If you think you can live this life and take a way out and take the easy way out, it doesn't work that way, Paul says. There is no other way except this way. It's a hard way. If you are ashamed of Christ, then what does the word tell us? He will be ashamed of you. As, as believers, as Christians, we must embrace Him at all times. Okay, At all times. The good times and the bad times. And in the shame, we must embrace Him. Otherwise, you'll be numbered with those that Jesus talks about who tried to save their own life. If we're not willing to do that, we'll be numbered with them. And the sad reality is they are the ultimate losers. The ones who try to save their own life. <clears throat> Jesus says it doesn't work that way. When you think about this Christian life, this paradox, dying to self, um, it's it's again it's it's a it's a continual battle in the life of a Christian, isn't it? Continual every day, dying to self, putting your own desires away, and seeking to serve and live your life for Christ. Calvin had some some helpful words here because I think this is this is good this is profitable because we can think about um, this this again this losing life uh, hating life in this world these are very strong words from Jesus and they're making a point um, Calvin says this he says in short to love this life is not in itself wrong provided that we only pass through it as pilgrims keeping our eyes always fixed on the object, on our object. For the true limit of a loving life is when we continue in it as long as it pleases God and when we are prepared to leave it as soon as He shall order us. Or, to express it in a single word, when we carry it, as it were, in our hands and offer it to God as a sacrifice. You see the attitude that... that that uh, Calvin is, is sharing. You see the, the mindset. He says, live in this world as pilgrims. Pilgrims are what? Just passing through, right? They don't... And then talking about holding it in our hand. And, and we, I could add holding everything loosely, right? Not holding on too tight because it's not yours. 
Right? Your life is not yours. It's not, you can't hold on too tight, too tight to it. And what does it say about our life? We offer it to God as a sacrifice. Every piece of it. Man. That's, that's a complete way of life. Living as a sacrifice. Offering everything about our life as a sacrifice to God. Then Jesus says in verse 28, the first part, I'm just going to read the first half of verse, excuse me, 27. Now my soul is troubled. Now, if you're like me, uh, too often you get to these words, uh, you read them, and you just drive on by. And that's probably a mistake. Jesus says, okay, he's, remember the context, right? The hour that he has been pointing to, now for some three years of earthly ministry, that hour is at hand. It's here. And what does Jesus say? He says, my soul is troubled. Now think about what we've studied in the life of Jesus so far. We've, we've seen His power, the things He can do. We've seen Him on display. We've seen Him do uh, mighty works and miracles, even raising someone from the dead. We've heard uh, His words taught and preached with power. At this point, is, is He scared? Is He expressing some form of Cowardice, knowing what lies ahead. Here Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Now, the word he uses means revulsion or horror. Now you think about that for a minute. That's stronger than just my soul is troubled, right? My soul is horrified. This is the words from Jesus Christ. His words. His soul is horrified. Our Lord is saying that His soul is horrified for what I'm about to face. This is a side of Jesus we have not seen before. We know that Jesus is not a coward. But what we do see here is his human nature has feelings and emotions. I need to quote Calvin again because he's Calvin and he has a wonderful way. The death which he underwent must therefore have been full of horror. Because he could not render satisfaction for us without feeling in his own experience the dreadful judgment of God. And hence, we come to know more fully the enormity of sin, or even our own sin, for which the Heavenly Father exacted so dreadful a punishment on His only begotten Son. Do you see? Let me read this piece again, because it's helpful. Jesus could not render full satisfaction for us without feeling in his own experience the dreadful judgment of God. What's about to happen? 
on the cross. Whose who's sins is Jesus dying for? How many? All the sins of the elect. What is the punishment for those sins? Judgment. Wrath of God is the punishment. And Jesus is about to take on himself all of it. Is that not horrifying? This is a man. This is fully man and fully God, right? This is a man who does not know sin. He's never sinned. He's never experienced the displeasure of his father. He's never experienced wrath from the father. Because he there's there's no he doesn't deserve it, right? And yet he's about to voluntarily take that on himself. He's horrified. Now listen, this is Calvin still. This referring to that dreadful punishment. Calvin continued, let us therefore know that death was not a sport and an amusement to Christ, but that he endured the severest torments on our account. That's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy. It should be heavy. It's heavy to Jesus. We do not have a Savior who does not understand us. Okay? He understands us. Because He carried it. It's amazing, isn't it? Truly amazing. The Gospel is absolutely just the most amazing thing in the world. Isn't it? That God would send His Son into this world to pay the penalty for our own sins. If you ever have doubts, okay, about... Christianity, your faith. What what man could come up with this? This did not start with men. This started in the very throne room of God. Only God could come up with this plan. Now listen to what he says next. Verse 28. He says... Father, glorify your name. He didn't didn't say, Father, glorify my name. Now, what we know is that the Son will be glorified in what's about to happen. But Jesus knows that the higher purpose of the cross was that the Father would be glorified. And that what? His justice would be satisfied. When the Son paid the debt on the cross, God would be glorified. We know that. When Jesus prayed this, when when we hear these words from Jesus, when we hear, we get to see a little bit of His heart here in these words, right? We get to feel it's It's... This is heavy. It's going to get heavier, right? If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, right? But it gets heavier. It's done in here. We're just getting warmed up. We're going to be, you know, in this hour for several chapters here until the end of the Gospel, right? The end of the Gospel of John. But we see this, this change in Jesus. But here, this, this verse, it says, Father, glorify your name. When, 
So what, what does Jesus know? He says, I know what the plan is. He said, I know uh, what the plan is. Verse, the, before we, we, we talk about glorifying his name, what did, after Jesus said, my soul is troubled, go back to verse, uh, the second half of verse 27. He's, he's definitely not a coward, but he continues. And what does Jesus say to, he says, my soul is troubled. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, the original construction of the language is difficult to follow here. Okay? One interpretation goes like this, and Dr. Sproul offered both of them. One interpretation goes like this. So Jesus just said, my soul is troubled. My soul is horrified about what's about to happen. Should I ask the Father to save me from the cross? I'm troubled. I'm horrified. But I will not ask him to spare me because this is what he has sent me to do. In other words, it's a rhetorical question. Okay? That's that's an interpretation. Dr. Sproul says, however, we know that here and very soon because we're familiar with the Gospel of John, in the garden, what is Jesus going to ask the Father? Jesus is going to ask the Father to take the cup from me. But, not my own will, but yours be done. R.C. Dr. Sproul said, I think there's another way to read it, and he prefers this one. Now you get to make up your own mind, I guess. He says, the view that he holds is that Jesus was indeed horrified at what would lie ahead and what is to come. And he said, what can I say? Then, then he directs the words to the Father. Father, save me from this hour. In other words, Jesus is in the middle of a crisis moment. Like the one that would soon happen in the garden. But he very quickly comes to himself and says, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Now, Again, we are talking about a being who is fully human and fully divine. Again, we we can't fully understand that. We can't grasp it. When we see emotional reactions from Jesus and we see that he experienced emotions, his emotions were pure and sinless. We need to remember that. So not all of our emotions, that's good news for us, right? Not all of our emotions are bad. We have some good emotions, right? We sometimes are horrified. Doesn't mean we sin. That means we don't have the faith. It means that we're human. And Jesus, guess what? Was human. Fully human. He experienced it. But as he, he's in this crisis moment, Father, save me from this hour. But very quickly he says what? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the very reason I am here. It's like Jesus was saying, I know the Father cannot take the cup. But it's, absolutely horrible to me it's horrifying i see what lies ahead and i wish i didn't have to endure it this this was no little thing is it 
the severity, the enormity, the complexity, the this all these things, these emotions that are going to be converging on the cross. But Jesus knows that the path that's before him is the Father's will for him. That's why I'm here. That's that's why I'm here. That's why I came to this hour. So that's when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And again, he's he's didn't say glorify my name. I want everybody to know what I'm about to do. Look at me. No. The Father be glorified. And when Jesus prayed that, when, when Jesus prayed that God will be glorified, and we know that He will in all things, but when Jesus prayed that, there was this amazing response. But not from the crowd. The Father Himself responds. God, the Father, spoke audibly from heaven. The second half of verse 28. So Jesus has prayed, my whole my soul is horrified. Says, says, Father, glorify your name. Now what did Jesus, what did the Father say? A voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now this is only one of three times recorded for us in the Gospels when the Father spoke audibly from heaven. You remember the first? It was what? Jesus' baptism. You remember. What did Jesus say? Uh, oh, excuse me, what did the Father say about the Son? You are my beloved Son, and with whom I am well pleased. The second was what? Transfiguration. What did the Father say about His Son then? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And this third time, I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. It's as sure as done. There's no changing the plan. Uh, what did the people say? The people said it was thunder. And you know, I can imagine that the voice of God coming into creation probably sounds pretty thunderous. Can you imagine the voice of God the Father coming into creation and hearing it with your own ears? Imagine it was thunderous, right? Others said it was the voice of an angel. But on this occasion, Jesus told them why the Father has chose to spoke uh, to speak uh, this way. And what did Jesus say in verse thirty? Jesus answered and said, "This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake." How can he say that? J- Jesus and the Father speak all the time. They're con- they're in constant communication. So. Jesus doesn't need to hear a word from from heaven. He doesn't need to do that. They're they're in constant communication. So what does he say? He didn't do that for me. He he could have revealed that to me with none of y'all even hearing it. He did it for your sake. And guess what? He did it for our sake too, didn't he? Because we're reading these words. The Father spoke to let the people know that he would be glorified through what was about to happen and he'll be glorified through his son. That the people didn't understand what was happening. Again, some thought it was thunder. Dr. Spruill ended this um, 
piece of his uh, commentary saying, is that what the word of God sounds like to you? Is it just noise that you can't understand? What have we, what have we been hearing? We, we've, we've, we've heard the word. We've heard Jesus' own words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's the point? Some people can't hear. The point is what? Some people can't hear the things of God. And the ones who can, the only reason they can hear is because God the Father has allowed them to hear. He's given them ears to hear. And so this question, what does the Word of God sound like to you? Do you have ears to hear? Has God in His mercy given you the ears to hear when He speaks? I alone, this is, this is bro, I, I pray that you have ears to hear. And I pray that it gives us all a deeper understanding of His Word as we move along in the Gospel of John. Especially as we approach the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. We pray for that. We pray for ears to hear. And why do we refer to it as Jesus' earthly ministry? Because, guess what? The good news is Jesus' ministry is still happening, isn't it? His earthly ministry has finished. But His ministry is still active. It's very alive, isn't it? And He's using you. He's using us to carry out His ministry. I will finish with a quote from Matthew Henry. Let us search whether Christ be in us the hope of glory. Let us beg Him to make us indifferent to the trifling concerns of this life that we may serve the Lord Jesus with a willing mind and follow His holy example. Any questions or any comments about today's lesson? I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time. Father, we thank You for this lesson. Father, as we look at Your Word and Father, as we read these particular passages, Father, there's a lot that uh, about you and about the Son and things, Father, that are too high for us and we can't understand. Father, but the things you have revealed, Father, they are plain for us. And Father, we pray that we will um, seek to follow you, uh, to deny our lives, to live everything before you as a sacrifice and to offer it to you. We pray that we won't hold on to this life too hard, that we lose sight of you. Father, as we leave our time of Bible study this morning, Father, we about to gather with the saints from around the world, Father, who are and the saints in heaven who are worshiping you. And Father, that is indeed a special time. And we pray that you will set aside our time. Father, we pray that our worship this morning will be acceptable before you. Pray that whatever may distract us, Father, whatever worldly concerns we may have, Father, we ask that we just put them away. And we can focus on your worship, Father. We can hear your word preached. Father, we thank you for our pastor. Father, we thank you that um, you have brought him and his family here. Father, we pray that uh, you will continue to use him in a mighty way, Father. Build him up, Father, and use him as your mouthpiece uh, to proclaim truth uh, with power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.